Hey, it's good to see you guys. We started a new series on the book of Mark in the New Testament just a few weeks ago. And we're going to get back to it next week. But I thought that it would be important for us today to take a whole Sunday to talk about this campaign uh, that we're in right now called A Church for the City. Um, and then immediately following the service, as Sean mentioned just a moment ago, we're going to, we have a presentation that we want to show uh, all, of who, all of you who are interested uh, plans for the renovation of the building, and, and I hope that all of you will attend that because I think this will be very important. I think it will be exciting for you, and I, think, I, think, I, th- I just think you're going to enjoy seeing what we have planned uh, for the future. Um, we don't want to just be a church in the city of Evansville. We want to be a church for the city of Evansville. And that, that by the way, I, I want you to understand that that's more than just a campaign slogan for us. When we were forming City Church uh, just under two years ago, uh, we, we stated the vision of City Church a little more formally, but here, here's what we said. We said that the vision of City Church is to bring spiritual, social, and cultural renewal to the city of Evansville and beyond through a movement of people who are being transformed by the gospel of Jesus Christ. Now, it's a little more formal, right, but you can still hear the same sentiment in there, that, that we have this concern for the city of Evansville that is fundamentally a part of the DNA of our church. It's why we named ourselves City Church. We take this uh, very seriously. We believe that our primary concern as a church is the present and the future well-being of the city of Evansville. We believe God cares about the city of Evansville. We believe God loves the city of Evansville. And so we believe that we should care and love, about, uh, love the city of Evansville uh, as well. Next Sunday, we're going to take two offerings. Sean mentioned it a moment ago. I want to correct one thing he said. We have not yet purchased the building. We have a contract to purchase the building, but we don't purchase it until we actually hand over the money uh, to the bank. You guys know how that works? Yeah, we can talk about purchasing it all we want, but until we have the money, we don't actually purchase the building. Okay, I want to make sure you understand that. Next Sunday, we're going to take two offerings, as Sean said. One of them will be our regular offering, uh, you know, just the one that kind of allows us to continue to do ministry and have services and things. And then the other one will be uh, an over and above offering for the Church for the City campaign. Look, if you want to give to the Church for the City campaign, we would really appreciate that. But you've got to know this, that it has to be over and above what, regular, what you regularly give just to do the ministry of City Church. Okay? So make sure that you understand that. If you give, us, if you give enough uh, to allow us to purchase the St. John's building, we'll own a place in the physical heart of this city, right? We'll have a physical building in the physical heart of this city. But here's what I want to think about today, okay? What will it take for us to have a place in the emotional heart of this city, right? See, we want to help shape the future of the city of Evansville. But I don't know if you've noticed this or not, but nobody in Evansville is crying out for a church to help shape the future of this city, right? Nobody's crying out for that. And part of the reason for that is that most people today don't think Christianity has much of anything to offer them or their city. So the question I want to ask today is, what will it take to earn a place in the emotional heart of this city so that this city will begin to recognize that there is something real, something tangible about what we believe 
that needs to be a critical part of the future of Evansville. So the city is, is wanting that. And so uh, individuals within this city uh, see what we believe and say, I want that to be a part of my life too, okay? And so this morning, instead of having you turn to the Gospel of Mark, I'm going to ask you to turn to what is a very familiar story for many people, uh, even if they don't have much familiarity with the Bible. Uh, if you would, I'd like for you to turn in your Bibles, and you are bringing those Bibles, right? Okay, turn in your Bible to the Gospel of Luke chapter 10. Luke chapter 10, and we're going to begin reading at verse 25. For those of you who are new here, I want you to know, I am on a campaign for those who are regular attenders here to always bring a Bible to church. Now, it doesn't have to be a hard copy. It can be a digital copy. That's fine. But bring a Bible to church so that you can follow along, make notes, uh, and, uh, and refer back to those notes. And by the way, I should mention to you that uh, every Sunday morning at 10 o'clock on our app, all of the notes go live on our app. So you can follow along there uh, if you would like to. See, we're doing everything we can to encourage you to get into the Scriptures and make it easy for you to do so. Right? And you're going to do that, right? Okay. I just, I just have no confidence in that. I mean, I just... That just didn't sound like it was a resounding, yes, right, we're in. Uh, Okay. Uh, Welcome to those of you who are joining us also by our podcast or a City Church app this morning. Glad you're with us too. I think that Luke 10 speaks to this question that we're asking today about what it will take not just to be a church in the physical heart of this city, but also to have a place in the emotional heart of this city. And I want to give you just a word about the setting of Luke 10, okay? Here's the thing. This story that Jesus is about to tell comes out of one of the many attempts that religious leaders in Israel made at trapping Jesus into saying something that would show what they perceived to be Jesus' blasphemous views about God and his low regard for the Mosaic law that God had given to the nation of Israel. So look at verse 25. Look at verse 25, okay? On one occasion, and for those of you who are new, we've got the verses up on the screen so you can read them. On one occasion, an expert in the law, okay? This is like a seminary professor kind of dude, okay? An expert in the law stood up to test Jesus. Teacher, he asked, what must I do to inherit eternal life? Now, right away, we see a couple of problems. Problem number one is that this guy wants to test Jesus. That is not a great plan, okay? When I was in college, I learned a little bit about boxing, even did a little boxing, enough to know how to get myself hurt, okay? This guy challenging Jesus in the law would be like me challenging Manny Pacquiao or Floyd Mayweather to a fight just because I knew a little about boxing, right? This guy is going to get theologically KO'd in the first minute of the first round because Jesus is the ultimate expert in the law because he's the embodiment uh, of the law. The law was all about Jesus. It was all about him, okay? So this guy's in trouble. That's problem number one. Problem number two, and you probably saw it if you were watching closely, this guy asks this question, what must I do to inherit eternal life? You see his emphasis, right? What must I do? That's what his emphasis is. What must I do? Okay. And Jesus answers him in verse 26 with a question. Watch this. 
What is written in the law, he replied. How do you read it? Okay, that's Jesus asking those questions. What's written in the law? How do you read it? The teacher of the law who does not know that he is about to get a right cross that is going to knock him out says with all the confidence in the world, love the Lord your God with all your heart and with all your soul and with all your strength and with all your mind and love your neighbor as yourself. He's quoting two passages of Old Testament Scripture that summarize the heart of Israel's law when he reads that, okay, or when he says that. Now, here's, here's what Jesus says, okay. This is, this is the right cross that's going to take him out, okay. You have answered correctly, Jesus replied. Do this and you will live. Now, I suspect that that answer surprised the lawyer, this teacher of the law. I suspect that that answer surprised him as much as it surprises some of you, because you're, some of you are thinking, wait a minute, wait a minute. Uh, Jeff, you're always talking about the fact that salvation isn't about my performance. It's not about what I do. It's about Jesus' performance. It's about what Jesus uh, does, what he did all those years ago on the cross. So it's not about me. It's about Jesus, what he did. So why is Jesus saying, do this and you will live? Do this and you will inherit eternal life. Why is he saying that? Okay, so you have to understand that there is a little uh, tongue-in-cheekness about Jesus' answer here. It's a little like he's saying with a smile on his face, yeah, do that. (laughs) Do that and you'll live. See, what's happening here is that Jesus, because he is, because he's very gracious, he lets this guy save a little face, but he wants him to realize that it is he, the teacher of the law, who has low regard for the law, not Jesus, okay? Because if this guy really understood the law, at this very moment, he would be on his knees begging for mercy in front of Jesus, completely crushed by the law's demand on his life. Let me ask you something. Who here could possibly say that 100% of the time you love God with 100% of your heart and 100% of your soul and 100% of your strength and 100% of your mind? Raise your hand if you could say that. Only a child (laughs) could possibly say that. And let me ask you this. Could you say, that you love your neighbor as much as you love yourself 100% of the time. Now think about it, okay? Here's what I want you to think about. Think about how much time you have spent over the course of your life daydreaming, fantasizing about things you want in your life and how great your life would be if you had them, okay? Think about that. Or think about how much time and energy you've spent in your life bemoaning how unfair life is and how you got screwed out of what was rightly yours, okay? Let me just give you, let me, let me, okay, let me give you a personal thing. Let me, let me, well, let me ask you this way, and then I'll give, I'll give you this personal thing. Could you say that you have ever spent that much time fantasizing about how great someone else's life would be if they got what they wanted? And feeling as much joy over that as you feel about your own life and your own dreams and fantasies. So like yesterday I mowed my yard 
uh, for the first time in two weeks. And it, you know, things grow. It, it's like a jungle here in Indiana compared to Texas. I mean, two weeks in Texas, it doesn't rain down there. You could wait two weeks, mow your yard, nothing would happen. Here in, here in Indiana, it is like a jungle. My, my grass was like that high after two weeks. And so I mowed it. It was really hard. And I got this one section of the yard that's really big. And, and so I'm push mowing this. And I, yesterday, was fantasizing about a riding lawnmower. That's what I was fantasizing about, okay? I mean, I dreamed about it. As I was mowing and sweating and pushing this, I was dreaming about a riding lawnmower. And one of those that's got like a zero radius thing, you know what I'm talking about? And in fact, if I could get one, one that I just kind of stand on or sit, you know, just, just a standing or sitting, uh, you know, riding lawnmower. That's what I fantasized about. Now, let me ask you guys a question. Okay, first of all, do me this favor. Let me tell you that without anybody here saying that, okay, I'm going to give you a riding lawnmower. I don't want you to give me a riding lawnmower. Nobody go buy me a riding lawnmower. In fact, take the money that you would give for that and put it to the Church for the City campaign. That will go a lot further. Don't buy me a riding lawnmower. But let me just ask you this. How many people here are going to wake up tomorrow morning thinking to yourself, I wonder if Jeff got the riding lawnmower? Oh, my goodness. I can't go any further without knowing if Jeff got that riding lawnmower. How many of you are going to wake up like that? None of you are going to wake up like that. None of you are going to go all day tomorrow, all week next week, all this summer thinking, did my neighbor Jeff, did he get a riding lawnmower this summer? I almost can't go on with my life. I'm going to cancel my summer vacation plans until I know if Jeff got that riding lawnmower. How many of you are going to do that? Not a single one of you. I don't care if you raise your hand or not. You're not going to do it. You know that, okay? Could you say that you have ever spent that much time fantasizing about how great someone else's life would be if they got what they wanted and feeling as much joy if they did as you feel about your own when you get something that you want, okay? How many of you could do that? Or how many of you could say that you spend as much emotional energy and shed as many tears over someone else's tragedies as you do your own? Uh, Of course not. Not... No one could say those things, right? Nor could this teacher of the law. If this guy understood the law, what he had just told Jesus, love the Lord your God with all your heart, all your mind, all your soul, all your strength, and love your neighbors yourself. If he really understood what he had just told Jesus, he would have cried out, Lord, have mercy upon me. I'll never inherit eternal life if that's what it's about. I can't save myself by my own righteousness. That standard, the law standard, is way too much for me. Woe is me. I am cursed. And if he would have said that, Jesus would have said, you're right. But God in his mercy has sent me to do for you what you could never do for yourself. I'm going to fulfill the law on the cross. And if you will believe in me, you would have eternal life. But stunningly, in an amazing and very telling moment of self-deception and rationalization, that's not what this teacher of the law says. Look at verse 29. Oh, this is so telling. But he wanted to justify himself. So he asked Jesus, and who is my neighbor? Let's stick with the first part of that statement for a moment, but he wanted to justify himself. You know what that means, right? Because we've all done this uh, before. Uh, 
you have to, you've got this thing where you feel the need to prove to someone that you are right, that whatever you're being accused of is wrong, even if you know they're right. It's instinctive. We all do this. We all want to justify ourselves, okay? No, I wasn't being mean, honey, when I said that you're just like your mother. I was just making an observation. That's it. Have you ever done that, right? I was not being rude when I honked at the person in front of me in the left lane. I was merely trying to protect them from having an accident. That's it. That's all I was doing. You, you, see, you know that instinct that you feel, that like you want to justify yourself? That's exactly where this guy is. He feels the need to justify himself. And so he asks this question, who is my neighbor? Now, why that question? Why that? Well, like any good lawyer... What he's seeking to do is to limit his liability. Uh, He wants to narrow down the definition of a neighbor so that he might just be able to meet the requirements of the law. See, he thinks, well, those standards are so high, but if I can just narrow down the definition of what it means to be a neighbor, then maybe I can slip in, right? And so, in other words, when he asks this question, what he's saying is, he's saying, Jesus, look, let's be reasonable here. There are some people that I couldn't possibly be expected to consider my neighbor. I mean, there are some dirty, filthy, vile people out there. And they don't all live in Washington, D.C. Some some of them are right right around here in Evansville, Indiana. There are some people that I couldn't possibly be expected to consider my neighbor. Dirty, filthy, vile. They don't look like me. They don't believe what I believe. They don't value what I value. They don't go to temple where I go to temple. Some of them don't even go to temple at all. In other words, how broadly are you defining this neighbor thing, Jesus? And what kind of love does God require? And so Jesus answers this man's question about who is his neighbor with a story. This is one of the things I love about Jesus. He tells awesome stories. And I think there are a couple of points in this story that I want to draw out because I think they speak directly to this question that we're asking today about what it will take for us to earn a place in the emotional heart of the city and not just be a church in the physical heart of the city. Look at verse 30. Verse 30. In reply, Jesus said, A man was going down from Jerusalem to Jericho when he fell into the hands of robbers. They stripped him of his clothes, beat him, and they went away, leaving him half dead. A priest happened to be going down the same road, and when he saw the man, he passed by on the other side. So too, a Levite, when he came to the place and saw him pass by on the other side. But a Samaritan, as he traveled, came where the man was. And when he saw him, he took pity on him. He went to him. He, he bandaged his wounds. He poured on oil and wine. I mean, that's like, that was like medicine back in those days, okay? Then he put the man on his own donkey, and then he took him to an inn, and he took care of him. The next day, he took out two silver coins, and he gave them to the innkeeper, and said to the innkeeper, look after him, and when I return, I will reimburse you for any extra expense that you may have. And then Jesus asks the question, "Uh uh-oh, which of these three do you think was a neighbor to the man who fell into the hands of the robbers? The expert in the law replied, and notice this very carefully. Notice this very carefully. The one, he said, the one who had mercy on him. And Jesus told him, go and do likewise. So two points. 
two points I want to make this morning that uh, will help us understand how we can become the kind of church that earns a place in the emotional heart of this city. And here's the first one, the first point. Social compassion is an expression of real faith in Christ. Uh, Social compassion is an expression of real faith in Christ. Now, make sure that you understand something, okay? I want you to make sure you get this. Jesus is not teaching. He's not, he is not, everybody say not, not. He is not teaching that social compassion is a way to be saved, okay? Let me just want to make, stop, let me just make sure you understand this. Two trees, two trees standing next to each other in the middle of the summer, okay? Here's a tree, here's a tree, here's a tree, standing right next to each other, middle of the summer, okay? One tree is full of leaves. This one's full of leaves, okay? The other has no leaves. Which one's alive? Yeah, it's this one, right? This one's alive, the tree with the leaves. But here's the question. Do the trees, excuse me, do the leaves give the tree life? No, they don't give the tree life. They just, they just demonstrate that the tree is alive. And in the same way, Social compassion is not a way to be saved, okay? It's just a demonstration that a person is saved, okay? So social compassion is, they're they're the leaves, right? They just demonstrate that I'm alive, that I've been saved, okay? Now, this might be a surprise to some of you, that Jesus would place such an emphasis on social compassion. Because, and here's why I say that, people in churches often have a sense that there are certain things that are really important in Christianity, like, uh, I don't know, attending church, having devotionals, evangelizing, uh, worshiping, things like that. They would say, well, those things are all very important. And those are important. Don't misunderstand me. Social compassion, though, is often seen as a nice optional thing, but not nearly as important as the other stuff. And yet here in this passage, when Jesus wants to give an expert in the law a lesson on the kind of love God requires, he turns to social compassion. And I wonder if that surprises uh, any of you. In fact, I want you to notice the kind of needs that the Samaritan in this story meets for this man who has been beaten. He gives him medical assistance bandages his, his wounds, you know, and he, and he treats them with oil and wine. And then he gives him a financial subsidy to put him up in the inn. And then he stays overnight with him to give him friendship and compassion and protection. And then he gives him transportation. See, this, this man was destitute. He was left for dead, unable to take care of himself. And the hero in Jesus' story takes care of all of that for him. You see, what I want you to understand is that social compassion is one of the results of the cross of Christ. See, the community of Jesus Christ has a new love for people, even for those who are still outside of the community, because that's exactly what Jesus Christ did for us on the cross. While we were still enemies, the book of Romans says, while we were still enemies, while we were still outside the community of faith, when we were still in our sins, Christ died for us. 
And so we care about the physical and the emotional needs as much as we care about the spiritual needs of people who are outside of the faith community. You could even say that the cross of Christ makes us promiscuous with our love and with our generosity. We take care of people not only in our own community, but people outside of our community as well. And see, folks, here's the thing. We can talk all day long about what we believe. We can sing songs about what we believe. But until we routinely demonstrate social compassion for the people of the city, we will only occupy a building in the physical heart of the city, not a place in the emotional heart of this city. Okay? We must practice what we preach. We must live what we believe. We must use social compassion as an expression of our love for Christ. We must demonstrate that if we want to have a place in the emotional heart of the city where people are crying out, oh, man, we've got to have them be a part of the future of this city. We've got to have what they believe. Social compassion is the way that we do that. We ought to evangelize. Yes, we ought to have devotional lives. We ought to attend church. We ought to sing worship songs. We ought to do all of that stuff. But, folks, social compassion is what will cause this city to pay attention to what we say that we believe. One more thing that I want you to see in this story. I want you to notice that Jesus makes the hero of this story a Samaritan. Now, the reason that that is critical is that many of you will remember that the Jews and the Samaritans hated each other. Now, the Jews considered the Samaritans kind of a half-breed Jew. And they thought that the Samaritans, they felt that the Samaritans had some very suspect beliefs. The most derogatory statement a Jew could make about another Jew was to call them a Samaritan. Nothing worse than calling a Jew a Samaritan. Okay, what I want you to do right now is I want you to think, don't, please don't shout them out, but just think in your head, okay, the worst slur that you could imagine hearing today, any kind of slur that you could imagine hearing today about somebody, about yourself, any kind of slur. Stop, okay, stop. I, I, probably the first time you've ever been in church that the pastor said, I want you to think of something really awful, okay? But I want you to do it because I think you've got you to gotta get that to understand what's happening here, okay? Worst slur that you can think of. That, whatever you have in your mind right now, is the equivalent of a Jew calling another Jew a Samaritan. Okay? And in fact, I called this to, attention, to your attention a moment ago. You might have even noticed that at the end of the story, Jesus asked this Jewish expert in the law, he asked him, who's the hero of the story? And did you notice that this guy, this Jewish guy, this teacher of the law, he can't even bring himself to mutter the words, the Samaritan. What did he call him? The one. He didn't say the Samaritan because that would be despicable. He just says the one who had mercy on him. Okay. 
By having a Samaritan have pity on a Jew, Jesus is not only exposing the self-righteousness of this expert in the law who would have never done this for a Samaritan, though he thinks he could justify himself in God's eyes, he would have never done this for a Samaritan. By having the hero be a Samaritan, Jesus is not only demonstrating his self-righteousness, but he's also explaining to him the parameters of love your neighbor as yourself. And here's the second point. As we think about social compassion, as we think about having a place in the emotional heart of this city, here's the second point. Here's the, here's the answer to the question, who is your neighbor? Who is your neighbor? Here's the answer. Your neighbor is anyone in your path. Anyone in your path. Do you have a lesbian in your extended family? She is your neighbor. Do you have a gay man in your extended family somewhere? Maybe works near you, works with you. He's your neighbor. Have a Jewish person in your life? She's your neighbor. Black person in your life? Your neighbor. White person in your life? Your neighbor. An east side person in your life? This is your neighbor. Got a west side person in your life? She's your neighbor. Got a Christian in your life? Your neighbor. Got a Muslim in your life? Your neighbor. Got someone poor in your life? Your neighbor. Got someone rich in your world? It's your neighbor. You see, this is what the love of Jesus does to people. When we experience his love through the cross, all of our prejudices are changed. It softens heart. It destroy, hearts. It destroys biases. It tears down walls uh, everywhere. Uh, it expands your relational world. Uh, this, uh, Sean Little uh, tweeted something out recently. I'm going to paraphrase it. He said it in a way that's much more cool than I'm going to say it. But what he was saying was that he was so grateful that, uh, that, that he became a Christian because if he hadn't become a Christian, he wouldn't have the wide diversity of relationships that he has now. Because all of our tendencies, if we're not Christians, if we haven't been moved by the cross of the Christ, our tendency is to just be around people who are what? Just like us. But see, when we, when we come to know Jesus Christ, it's like every, all of the walls get torn down and it expands our relational world so much. We have more diversity, not less diversity, if we've been moved by the cross of Christ. The point is, that you recognize as a believer in Jesus Christ, as a result of the cross, that there is no limiting, there's no limiting who your neighbor is to just the people that you feel comfortable with. If we could be a church that embodies this idea that your neighbor is anyone in your path, I promise you we could earn a place in the emotional heart of this city. But if we try, like the teacher of the law in this passage, to narrow down our definition of neighbor to only those people who are like us and who believe like us, who behave like us, and have the same worldview as us, we'll be a church that occupies a place in the physical heart of the city, but not the emotional heart of the city. 
And let me tell you something. That's a place, the physical heart heart of the city, but not the emotional heart of the city. That's a place that a lot of churches in this city exist. And I tell you that, not to be critical of other churches, but I tell you that to understand it is extremely easy to happen, to have happen in a church. That you have a building in the city, but no one cares. When Jesus ends this story by telling this expert in the law to go and do likewise, to be the kind of neighbor that the Samaritan was, this guy should have bowed before Jesus and he, would have, and he should have said, that kind of love, it's not in me. I can't do that. Have mercy upon me. But he doesn't. He doesn't. Only one person has ever loved like this. Do you, do you understand that this parable is really about Jesus? I've told you guys this before. That the Bible's not about you. The Bible is from beginning to end. It's about Jesus. And so the hero of this story, the good Samaritan, the ultimate good Samaritan, see, this story, it's about Jesus. See, Jesus came along and he stopped for us when nobody else would. And when nobody else could heal us, he got down off of his high horse and he carries you and he befriends you and he binds your wounds and by his stripes you have been healed. And he pays off all of your debts in one shot on the cross. Pays for it himself. And he goes after the despised of the world and the broken and the bleeding and the dead when no one else does. You see, he's the good Samaritan of the story. And if he did this for me, if he did this for me, I want to be a good Samaritan for the city of Evansville and and beyond. Not out of guilt. Not out of pressure. Not because my eternal life depends upon it. But out of love for Jesus and thankfulness that he was my good Samaritan. So I want to be a good Samaritan to everybody else that's in my path. And I want to do it not out of my limited capacity to love but out of his unlimited capacity to love. You see, I believe that the cross can change this city because it changed me. That's the key, folks. That's the key to becoming a church that has an emotional place in this city, not just a physical place in this city. It's understanding that you can't You can't limit your neighbor. Your neighbor is anyone in your path. And demonstrating social compassion to our neighbors, that's the key. Now, look, next week we're going to take take two offerings, uh, one of which will be our regular general fund. Then one will be, as I said earlier, it'll be the offering for the Church for the City campaign. if If you give enough money, we'll be able to purchase that building. Okay, If you don't, we won't. 
But if you give enough, we'll be able to purchase that building. But I want you to understand that purchasing that building and moving in down there later this year, that just gives us a physical place in the city. But that's just when it starts. That's when everything really starts. We have to be a church that loves our neighbors, whoever they are, wherever they are in this city, if we're going to have a place in the emotional heart of this city. Would you bow with me for prayer? Our Lord Jesus Christ, you are the good Samaritan. Um, You are the good Samaritan. I could never love like that. I don't have it in me to love like that. But Lord Jesus, the great truth of Scripture is that not only did you die on the cross for my forgiveness, but you were raised again from the dead so that your life is placed in me. Your love uh, is in me. And I I can love people with a love that I don't have. I can love people with your love now. Lord Jesus, for those that are here this morning that have never come to a place where they have understood that you died on the cross for their sins because they could never live up to the law, Lord, would you just impress them, uh, impress upon their hearts the beauty of that news, how great that news is. And today, right now, as they sit in their seats, Lord, would would you just create in them a sense that of first urgency, the most important thing that they will do today is to invite you to be their Savior, to believe upon you that you did die on the cross for their sins, and that by no other name can they be healed. But then, Lord Jesus, would you convict every one of us here as a church uh, that we need to be a neighbor for this city. We need to do it individually, and then we need to do it corporately. And that that is where people will understand that there is something about us that is different that they've got to have in their lives and that has got to be a part of this city. Or would you just speak to us about that today? The rest of the day, when we go home, would you be just reminding us, uh, uh, reminding us of this? Would you just, uh, you know, in a gracious way, irritate us with this truth over the course of the next week and the next month and... And even when we move into that new building, would you keep that at the forefront of our hearts and minds? Social compassion is an expression of our belief in you. Lord Jesus, thank you so much for what you have done for me. And we worship you this morning. May your name be exalted here in this place. It's in your name that we pray.